everyone, welcome back to the Metaverse podcast hosted by me, Jamie Burke, founder and CEO of Outlier Ventures. Our mission is to accelerate the open metaverse based on principles around the sovereignty of identity, data, and wealth. On this podcast, we meet the space's leading founders, creators, and innovators, and hear their personal stories, journeys, and mission to make the metaverse more open. On today's episode, we're talking to Reza Naini, co-founder and team lead at Swash, a tech reimagining data ownership through a Web3 browser extension and collection of apps that lets you earn money as you browse, giving you control while you benefit from the value your data generates online. So let's get started. Welcome, Reza. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Swash is really kind of helping people, if we kind of speak to that initial mission that I mentioned of of this show, which is around the kind of sovereignty of identity and data. Swash is kind of really focused on how you can allow internet users at large to to own their data and earn this kind of passive income. Um, I kind of think of it as a a form of UBI or uh, because data is the, the thing that is driving that that revenue or income, uh, UDI, Universal Data Income. We've had the pleasure of working with you uh, within the Basecamp Accelerator. You know, you're one of several projects focused on on a kind of data component, uh, whether we call it an open data economy or a new data economy, and uh, which is really kind of privacy-centric. Um, and, you know, often people talk about how you know, data is is the new oil. It's the most valuable commodity on the planet, and yet somehow it's only really a handful of organisations that, that seem to benefit from that. You guys have been making uh, huge progress in terms of like the number of installs. I think it's just sub ninety thousand installs, uh, seventy five thousand current uh, monthly users. Uh, you've distributed, you know, hundreds of thousands back to the users, and I believe you've collected over a hundred million data points. So you've kind of got uh, data that is at scale that is increasingly meaningful. Um, so we're going to kind of get into a lot of that now. You've got a, a great list of investors from KuCoin to Gate.io, of course, Outlier, but you've also you know, been making great progress with partners, Chainlink, Qcoin uh, as well, Oson Protocol, another one of the outlier portfolio co. Um, so, you know, big congrats on on all the kind of progress that you've been making. Um, but let's let's learn a little bit about Reza first. So, you know, tell us a little bit about your background, you know, your journey in, into this space, and how you ended up on the mission that is Swash. Sure. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for the intro. So I'm Reza Naini, one of the co-founders of Swash. Um, I grew up in Tehran, Iran, and have always been around computers. Both of my parents have been in the software industry since the early 90s. So I guess that's where my my initial interest came from. And that kind of had a big impact on the way I approach business and an emerging tech in general. My background is pretty varied. I spent some time in Southeast Asia, in, in Malaysia, and then in Belgium for my studies. 
and then went on to work for an enterprise software solutions company and a Fortune 100 in my mid-20s. But as I guess you would hear from other founders on your show, the, the, the corporate life wasn't really for me. I wanted to be more dynamic and fast-paced and have something you know, more hands-on and to create something for myself. So, so at, the, at the same time, I was working for this corporate job. I just fueled my startup ideas, my initial startup ideas with the salary that I got from the corporate job. Two of my startups failed. One of them I could exit from, which was a job search app. At that time, it was, um, you know, kind of popular. And then soon after, I came across blockchain in 2017 when I was doing a feasibility study for a project I was working on. And it was then that I was fascinated by the technology behind it. And my interest for it has, has only grown since. So yeah, that was a bit of a background about me. So kind of let's talk about, you know, why, why Swash? Before we get into like, what is Swash? What was it about the kind of problem statement of Swash that led you to kind of focus your energy on, on that particular application of blockchain technology? Um, I guess Swash was born in response to a few things happening at the same time back then when we were thinking about doing something at the intersection of blockchain and data while trying to solve the you know the problem of bringing mainstream adoption to crypto uh, first of all my co-founders and i had a good sense of why data is important and how people don't have the the right technical skills to practice their uh, data rights or to gain ownership of our of, of their data we, we realized that a lot of things are changing around how data is kind of uh, looked at in the world in terms of new regulations, GDPR, CCPA, and the end of third-party cookie tracking, um, which was going to change a lot of practices in um, the advertising tech. And also there were kind of we, we realized that there's rising demands for from people after data scandals like Cambridge Analytica and, um, and others. So it was a combination of all these kind of changing trends and what we thought could be possible using the decentralized tech to give back ownership and control of data to people while at the same time serving businesses with more data and with higher quality data. So yeah, that was the, the original thinking, the original brainstorming behind Swash and why we decided to do it. And I think one of the things that really appealed to us when you applied to the accelerator way back, I'm, I'm trying to even think how long ago it was now, uh, over a year and a half, is it something like that? Yeah, yeah, it was over, over a year and a half, yeah. Yeah, time's, time's a strange thing in, in these COVID times, right? You almost feel like you lost a year. But um, what, what we loved about it was its simplicity, uh, at least its initial simplicity. Because as you say, you know, there's lots of talk about data unions. There's lots of talk about 
being able to derive an income from your data. But as you say, the reality is for the average person, it's still impossibly complex. There's just too much friction from a user experience for it to be perceived to be worth their time. And, you know, you guys created this very simple, elegant browser extension plugin. Um, but then, of course, that begins to unlock all this uh, all this complexity that kind of sits behind it about how that could operate as a DAO, who might be then participating in that data marketplace. Um, and as I said, I think in the intro, you know, you're now arguably the world's largest data union. But let's just talk about how it all works. So if we could just talk about the the app for now and like why you kind of designed it in the way that you did in terms of the browser extension. Sure. So as you mentioned, it is started as a data monetization web application in form of a browser extension. And we tried to keep it, you know, super simple, you know, onboarding less than two minutes. And you don't necessarily need to have uh, good knowledge of crypto, good knowledge of data. Which is what, what you experience as a user is just install this browser plugin and it will automatically create your uh, crypto wallet for you and surf as normal. And then you will be rewarded. You will start seeing some earnings accumulating in your wallet. So that's, that's how it all works uh, on any browser. You just install the... Um, the plugin and you just surf as normal. And at the end of the day, at the end of the week, you can, you know, decide what you want to do with your earning. You just need to kind of transfer it or in the next chapter of Swash that we've been planning, um, you might want to uh, exchange it for other ecosystem benefits that we'll, we will deliver, uh, we will offer to our Swash members or to our data union members. And those partnerships that we've been building over the past year, they will also be kind of um, the extended part of Swash offering in terms of exchanging value with other ecosystems. So the possibilities are, you know, quite a lot, but we try to keep it simple in terms of user experience for now because we just want to get people buy-in and try to make this as tangible as possible because as you mentioned data is still not tangible to most people they know it's important we've reached to a point that you know the social impacts are quite clear to most people but they don't know how they can take agency so we try to make that kind of bring that closer to most people i hope when people start seeing that they can benefit from their data they become more aware of uh, how they can practice their rights as well and how they can gain ownership and hopefully even increase their bargaining power against data buyers. Yeah. And so, so as a new startup, as a new plugin, like nobody's heard of you or nobody had heard of you, how do you convince somebody to, in their mind, give you access to all their browsing data, which, you know, for most people, is it can be quite sensitive, right? So how do you get people to trust your browser plugin initially? To be honest, it wasn't all planned and we didn't have a strategy for this in the beginning. In the beginning, it was just a technical experiment. We just wanted to see for ourselves if this is 
even possible. So that was our MVP, something that collects data and redistribute payment, um, you know, um, crypto micropayment to a certain number of users. So we didn't have that challenge in mind when designing Swash or when creating the first version. Um, it hit us when we started trying to tell other people about it. Hey, this is possible. Do you want to join? And that was one of their, their first questions. What data are you collecting? Is my data safe? So what we did was to you know, make it super clear what kind of data we collect. And we started, you know, we gave people the opt out option and we gave people a lot of features to kind of protect their data, to turn off the browser from uh, collecting their data. And basically we left it to them to, to choose whether or not they want to do it. Um, and at the end of the day, the, the message was you are giving this data already away for free and you're not getting a cut from it. So why don't you do the same, but this time you'll get rewarded, uh, rewarded for it. And this was, I guess, appealing to most people. At the same time, we did our best to incorporate the, the latest privacy measures to not compromise uh, our users' privacy and, you know, not collect the data that they do not want us to collect. Right. So effectively, they, they could opt in and out as they're browsing as to, you know, whatever their whatever kind of searches they're performing in that particular moment as to whether they want to contribute towards presumably a data profile right is that what happens with the data that a profile an anonymized or pseudo anonymized profile of that that data is made or or is the data compiled in a different way so basically the data we collect um, we don't create profiles for specific uh, individuals the data we collect cannot be used to identify or target individuals. We anonymize and aggregate that data. And anyway, one person's data is not very important or valuable. So the value comes when you kind of aggregate that data and extract insight from it. So what we did was um, we kind of decided to uh, aggregate the data, anonymize it to be safe and to protect our users' privacy, and then start kind of extracting insight and patterns uh, and useful information from the data of masses, and then kind of redistribute the value that is created from that data to all those people um, who provided the data. Right. And so what, what kind of... Well, firstly, what kind of browsing data is collected? And then what kind of insights can be derived from it? Who is the buyer of this data and what, what are they hoping to kind of achieve with it? Um, in terms of the type of data that we collect, uh, it's non-personal, non-sensitive data. It would be your browsing data, the websites you visit, your search keywords, your path to purchase, and basically any data that you allow us. But we do not collect uh, personal identifiers like uh, your location. In terms of who buys this data or who is interested in uh, buying these data, uh, we have a few categories of data buyers, at least as we've categorized them. 
Um, they are AI and machine learning startups, market research and data analytics companies, brands and hedge funds. So these are um, the main categories of data buyers as we've identified them so far. Interesting. Yeah, the hedge fund component is interesting. Um, and so you were saying earlier, you know, obviously quite, quite rightly, that there's a certain scale to which this is interesting, presumably to both parties, right? So on the one hand, there needs to be a certain level of income for this to be worth the time of the individual to, to do the install, to perceive it as valuable. And then there needs to be a certain scale of data for it to be useful or meaningful to, to the buyer. So, you know, how, how much are people earning from this every month? And was there a threshold you had to get to before you kind of saw the kind of growth that you're enjoying now? In terms of how much people are earning, um, the, the exact number is not clear because it depends on how much the, the, the token that they, they earn is priced in the secondary markets. Uh, but that's perhaps also a good thing because people know if they join this data union, the bigger the data union gets, the more valuable the data and the more value can be generated and then redistributed to them. So we hope like the number, if, if I have to say one number, um, for most our users earning five to $10 a month would be convincing to join um, this data union. And if there are other data unions out there who are developing right now, that would be a good number. In terms of number of users, until you reach that critical mass and your data is meaningful, usually from our research, the industry standard says that you need to have at least 100,000 users, active users, within a specific geography, within a specific industry. Say, people who search for travel products in the UK. If you have 100,000 of those users, then that is your kind of turning point in terms of the value of the data that you provide to those who like data and would like to purchase it from you or your users in this case. Understood. Because I think, you know, th this is the perennial problem for most early stage startups, of course, as an accelerator. One of the biggest things we have to overcome is the, the chicken and the egg of building a marketplace. Do you focus on the supply um, or the demand? Um, so w which way did you focus first? Was it about building the supply from the user base? And how did you incentivize enough people to get to the, the point whereby that supply was interesting enough to create the demand side? Looking at it now, I think we focused on the supply side, on getting the initial user base. Our messaging in the early days were, uh, was more of a social kind of, was, was focused on the social aspect of Swash and telling people, look, we've, you know, kind of come up with this solution. And if enough people join this, uh, data union, it might start uh, making a difference. 
So we weren't really uh, kind of focusing on the immediate financial returns, but more of on the on the social aspect or the ideological aspect that uh, we're giving this data away for free. If more and more people join this, this can be meaningful. And people like that idea. And of course, the tokenization helped as well because there's always this uh, speculative kind of um, element to it that people will say, okay, this token might not be worth much now, but if I start supporting it, not only I get paid for the value of the data that I was giving away for free, but also the value of this token might increase as there is more demand for it because the supply is limited. And once we had, once we started collecting kind of enough data, we started approaching um, the data buyers or the data aggregators and data scientists saying that here's the type of data and here's the volume of data we have. Do you like it? And then some of them did like it in the early days. Some of them said, no, this is not the type of data or the volume of data that we are interested in. And that was kind of um, the beginning of the point that we started working or focusing on the demand side more and trying to understand the data market and data buyer needs in order to cater to the needs of this group of customers for our data union. Um, so yeah, it was mostly trying to be open with our messaging and our vision. Uh, in the early days, it was all about the vision and it was all about telling people, um, this is the minimum viable product we have and this is our vision. So uh, all we did was to emphasize on these two, mes these two messagings. And after a certain point, people started, you know, kind of, liking it, I guess, and telling each other about it. And it grew for itself. Yeah, I mean, what, I, what I've always really liked about it is that, you know, we talk about how people can derive an income from, you know, previously we might have said Web3, and now we might say in the open metaverse. Um, but it's always slightly abstract or, uh, and here it's like a very simple very easy, very real, albeit, you know, initially low value uh, way of earning income. It's just a, a kind of great way to get started. Um, and as you say, you know, if, if you're early in into the, the union itself, and I definitely want to talk about that a little bit later, you're effectively a, a stakeholder in the success of the initiative beyond your own initial like personal contribution. To what extent was the fact that somehow crypto was involved in this a friction point to onboarding data buyers, or did they just simply not care as long as the data was good enough? So it was a friction. It still is one of our challenges to, you know, kind of convince data buyers that you know you need to pay with crypto, but it's it's not a very major kind of obstacle in. Um, stopping you to scale because at the end of the day you can tell data buyers you need data and i have data uh in terms of payment you can pay with whatever 
currency you are comfortable with. And if one day you start kind of adopting crypto, you can, I can also accept that. So from, from their point of view, you are just a company that accept other currencies uh, in addition to the currencies they used to pay previously. So that's, uh, that's all there is. But of course, kind of educate them a little bit in the beginning, but it's not, it's not a very major problem. Okay, that's good. That's good to hear. Let's talk about the data union component now. I'm pretty sure if people have listened to this podcast before, you would have come across this, this concept of a data union previously, but maybe for new listeners, let's talk first conceptually, what is a data union and then practically you know, how a data union functions? Um, in its simplest form, I think in its simplest definition, data union is a framework that allows people to earn the value of their data. So it's, I mean, on the technology front, it would be a mechanism, a set of tools or applications that you can join and they help you earn from the value of your data. Hopefully they should be simple and they should allow for mass adoption. Um, so that, that is, that is data union in my definition. Um, and there are other, you know, terms for it, data trusts, data cooperatives. But all of them, you know, they, they kind of facilitate the same thing and point at the same issue. Um, so, so there are more data unions growing, um, these days. And it's, uh, I, I would say it's one of the emerging trends in the, in the web three. And it's a promising one because it's appealing to people and mainstream. And it's really solving a real issue and it's creating real value. And hopefully we can have more kind of support from the, from the policy side as we've seen that also starting to grow. And it would be an alternative or hopefully the main uh, way that people and businesses can handle data or can, can work with data in future. But is, is a data union uh, just a smart contract that kind of collects, redirects data? Is it just a payment mechanism? Uh, and how is it different from a DAO? Or is it, is it one and the same thing? Um, how is data union different than a DAO? Well, I guess um, not every data union is a DAO. There are different ways you can implement the governance of a data union. Uh, there are different ways you can uh, design the economic incentive and redistribution of value through a data union. In our case, we redistribute 70% of the value generated from the data union back to people. We're still not at the point that we can decentralize the the governance of this data union, uh, although 
we've done our best to kind of automate the processes and leave them to smart contracts. But because it's kind of a, it's a solution that is still is connected to the traditional world or traditional business world, you still need to work with data buyers and advertisers and all those guys. Um, whether or not it's yet possible to make it fully decentralized in terms of storing data, in terms of redistributing the payments, that remains a challenge that I think Swash and other data unions need to be able to solve. And if somebody can find a solution, that should be quickly adopted by others because that's the way forward. And this is kind of the, the missing link here uh, of data unions. Right now, data unions, I would say, are for people. But are they by people yet? I'm not sure. So that's, that's, that's the gap that we need to fill and we need to you know, keep working on. Yeah, and you know we we've actually got a startup in one of our current accelerators. I think the Filecoin accelerator that we're doing, Filecoin IPFS accelerator, which is which is building out some of the tooling and marketplaces for data unions generally. And I, I think you're you're already probably collaborating with them. Um, so you know, in the same way, I know a lot of people are excited about DAOs and. The DAO stack that's emerging, I think there's this parallel, which is um, you know the, the kind of data union stack as well, which is equally exciting um, and perhaps could be one of the more powerful ways that DAOs in the end even get mainstreamed, right? Because again, data is this thing that we're all already generating you know, passively uh, could derive an income from. And I, I want to get into some of the details of exactly how you do it, but I know that this isn't just for commercial use as well, right? There is a social component. You can effectively donate your data to social causes as well. Yeah, um, exactly. So when we started our first version, it was like, okay, people can opt in and get rewarded for the data they create. But then that was not how long people would like to do that and how, how like can we do better things with it um should we enable people who have now understood that they can earn from the value of their data should we also help them to put it in good use so that was when we uh, looked at ecosia it's this um search engine that tells you, okay, you can search on my search engine and for every search you do or for however many search you do, I'll plant trees. So they, they kind of spend, I guess, a part of revenues on planting trees. And we really liked that idea. And we were like, okay, how about if people can donate the value of the data that they earn uh, in their Swash wallet what if we enable them to donate that to the social good cause of their of their choice, whatever it could be, cancer research, um, uh, environment, um, poverty. So, and we thought that's also 
very interesting because many of these um, social goods organizations and charities in the world who are doing important um, important things to impact humanity, they have large social following and all these people who follow them, now they can find a new way to, to help these, um, these organizations and these initiatives. So in our next version, there will be a feature that, you know, you'll, you'll be given a choice that, okay, this is how much you've earned. Would you like to donate it to the wallet address of this organization? And of course, um, the, the question here is, does that organization have a wallet address, a crypto wallet address? And we, that's another thing like, um, the problem, the problem of adoption, it's not only creating that value, it's not only creating that feature, but also trying to, uh, kind of get people adopted, whoever the customer is. Uh, you mentioned DAOs. DAO is a great idea and it's the future, but if you want to have a DAO in your ecosystem, will there be enough adoption? Because most DAOs these days, they're only limited to two, three wallet addresses. So again, coming back to this charity, um, you know, we need, we had to find kind of more progressive charities that would be open to receiving donations in crypto. But that's, of course, it's not a very hard pill to swallow for most of them because, you know, you just tell them, okay, would you like to receive this donation from how many people that we have? And then there's usually a process of education and they'll get on board. So as I said, you've been making uh, huge progress. You know, you kind of got this hockey stick growth happening now in terms of installs, um, in terms of earnings distributed. I know that for most of this year, a lot of focus has gone into building something you call the S intelligence platform, basically any product's got an S in front of it. So I know, I know you're now looking at S Compute, the S channel launch uh, moving into next year. And then in years ahead, some Swash smart contracts. Could you just talk about what's installed for the next year? Sure. So um, we call them first wave solutions, starting with Data Union. And then after Data Union, well, Data Union, as I explained, is how we collect data ethically. And then now that we have that data, what are we going to do with that data? And how are we going to productize that data to those who are interested to buy it? That would be S-Intelligence, which is a intelligence platform providing unique business insight to businesses. And then we will have our S-Apps, which is basically a set of tooling and development environment for developers to build on top of Swash data and access data union members uh, and kind of incentivizing those data union members to adopt their apps. And the last of our first wave solutions would be S-Compute, which is basically a computational environment where data scientists or those companies with um, in-house data science functions can access data without transferring the data. They can just run their algorithms on top of the data that we source and extract its insight. So that is S-Compute. 
the last uh, of our first wave solutions. Very cool. Well, look, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I know you generally don't do that much media. I think you really should, actually. Um, I think you have a, a great ability to explain complexity simply. I probably do have to give a shout out to Shiv Malik of Pool Foundation, which was a project that I mentioned earlier that's going through the accelerator, working on data union infrastructure and stuff like that. So I'd highly recommend people check that out. Um, but Reza, thanks for coming on the show. As I said, it's been really exciting watching the progress that you've made since you graduated Basecamp, you know, over a year ago now. And I'm really excited to see what comes next. I've got my install. I've had it for some time now. And, you know, it, it's pretty frictionless, right? It just kind of runs in the background and, you know, you can you can derive that income. So I think it's a great first step for a lot of people that are looking to derive a passive income from, from the open metaverse. Sure. Thank you very much, Jamie. It was my pleasure coming on your show. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.